Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us for another Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a long list of topics that we're going to try to get to today, so I want to get right to introducing our panel and start our conversation. It's Wednesdays, which means that AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein is with us. Uh, Greg, uh, you've been a busy guy. You've been covering politics, electoral politics. You've been covering some of the demonstrations. Uh, You just haven't slowed down for quite a while now. Yeah, I mean, what a time. We've got primary in six days. We've got the pandemic, of course, that still hasn't gone anywhere away. And we've got now protests um, demanding civil justice and, and sweeping action um, all, all over the streets of, uh, of Atlanta and other cities across the state. And we're going to try to touch on as many of those topics as possible today. Uh, Patricia Murphy also joins us today. Patricia is a syndicated columnist. Uh, she uh, now is writing for USA Today and has written for Roll Call for quite a while. Plus, she has a little side gig writing lighter pieces for Garden and Gun. <laughs> Patricia, I should have checked. Do you have a new piece that's gone to USA Today that we should know about? No, not quite yet. It's, it's um, surprisingly quiet on Capitol Hill right now. Um, so, uh, no, I have a piece coming out next week, though, uh, especially in Roll Call and syndication as well. Oh. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Theron Johnson is uh, back with us. Theron Johnson, a longtime Democratic political consultant and uh, advisor to uh, Theron, I think it's fair to say that while your uh, home is within the Democratic Party, you have also been uh, an advisor to people across uh, party lines. I, the, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, on this show not long ago, spoke very highly of the kind of uh, guidance you've given him on a number of crucial issues. So it might be a mistake to just sort of pigeonhole you as a Democratic <laughs> political consultant. Well, well, thank you. Thank you, Bill. I hope you don't get me in trouble with my Democratic friends. But yeah, I thought about that the minute I said it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's totally fine. The, the Speaker Ralston and I are dear friends. We have a really good friendship. Yeah. Uh, okay. And by the way, he's the one who said it, uh, it on our show, so don't blame me. Um, we're also glad to have Edward Lindsay back with us. Uh, Edward, of course, was a uh, Republican state representative for uh, the city of Atlanta, uh, most of his jurisdiction, and now is a partner and the head of government relations for the state of Georgia for, Edward, the world's largest yeah. law firm, Denton's. How are you holding up, Edward? I'm holding up well, uh, you know, still in my bunker uh, and will be here for a while. And <laughs> and uh, I'll do Theron a, a favor and not tell the audience just how much I regard him. <laughs> OK, <laughs> uh, Greg Bluestein, I, I want to start with a story that uh, broke overnight that um, we're just getting I'm just getting a chance uh, to uh, look at as the day gets started today. Um, first of all, to set it up. Uh, we go back to the weekend when uh, uh, the the mayor, uh, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and Erica Shields, the police chief, held a news conference on Saturday evening, and it kind of surprised reporters when they announced 
that they had summarily fired two police officers for the abusive treatment they gave to a student from Spelman, a student from Morehouse, who were in a car together. Everybody knows this story by now. They were yanked out of their car violently. They were tased. And the uh, two officer, two of the officers involved in an incident were fired. But, but Greg, here's where the, the news develops in an interesting way. Uh, Channel 2 reported early this morning that, um, that Chief Shields was taken completely by surprise when yesterday uh, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office charged six officers who were involved in that arrest, arrested them, and uh, is filing charges against them. And uh, apparently Paul Howard, Greg, did this without notifying Erica Shields. At least that's her story. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I mean, Channel 2 uses the the, the phrase blindsided. Um, And it was an email that Police Chief Erica Shields sent to some of her deputies uh, basically talking about how they were completely caught off guard because of these newly filed charges. She felt like she was handling it um, the, 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 the correct way by, by suspending and firing these, terminating these officers, really, um, and, 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 and conducting a review. Um, she went on and described how she didn't know criminal charges would be filed and that they were never part of any discussion that she had with, with Mayor Bottoms or her administration. And look, I mean, th- these two officials have have long been at odds. I'm talking about the police chief and, and the Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard, but this just brings it to a uh, escalates it to a new level of tension. Uh, Patricia, we should point out that uh, in Atlanta, after the two officers were fired, a num- many of the protesters who continued to go out into the streets were outraged by that incident. Uh, said that there should be action taken against uh, the other officers who were involved in uh, the incident in one way or another. Um, so it isn't as if that the notion that they would be arrested hasn't been something that's been talked about by certainly protesters, at least, Patricia. Right, certainly by protesters. Um, when Chief Shields mm-hmm. talked about firing, especially the two officers who she fired, she actually had... Um, very nice things to say about them personally. She said that they were good people who had done a bad thing. She clearly has a personal relationship with these officers um, and the four others. I think it raises the um, sort of the multiple difficult dynamics here with different jurisdictions. There are also um, uh, National Guard troops on the streets as well. Um, And this incredible balance that the city and all cities have to strike between supporting their officers and um, preventing any kind of aggression toward the protesters, and then the amount of speed that they have to use to quickly diffuse the situation in the pub- in public opinion, meaning um, quick discipline and, in this case, uh, very quick um, arrests and charges being filed, um, but not discussing that uh, with Chief Shields, I think, is um, highly unusual, although apparently not that big of a surprise given the relationship between these two. But it just highlights how difficult it is to operate in this um, environment for public officials. So, so Theron and then Edward also, you should weigh in. Um, I want to unpack this just to, to this extent. I mean, we're really talking about two separate matters here. One is a jurisdictional uh, uh, dispute, you could say, 
Erica Shields feeling that Paul Howard stepped into city of Atlanta's business. The city uh, Shields would argue that they've been doing a pretty good job trying to police their own police officers in the aftermath of this case. The the district attorney, Paul Howard, saying, no, I'm Fulton County D.A. I can jump in on this. That's one matter. And to some extent, it is just a jurisdictional dispute. But, of course, the larger issue, Theron, is um, there the the um, the fact that so many people out there want accountability for this uh, horrific arrest that they witnessed uh, not only on the initial video but then a, from seven different body cam angles. So Theron, they're they're kind of two separate issues, and you're welcome to address it any way you want. Yeah, Bill, you're exactly right. It's all about accountability, and I, I agree with uh, Patricia. You know, listen. Um, Chief Shields immediately came out after reviewing the video with the mayor. She spoke with great regard for these two officers. I mean, you could literally see on her face that it pained her to have to fire them. Also for our listeners is that I think one of the things that she articulated is that they had their own uh, sort of in, uh, in, internal ongoing investigation into this matter with the two uh, students, one at Morehouse, one at Spelman, who was uh, aggressively and I think excessively uh, arrested. But let's talk about D.A. Howard, and you hit on something that's very important, um, uh, Bill, is that it was about accountability. I mean, at the end of the day, D.A. Howard did his job. And look at what's happening in Minneapolis. Let's not forget the sort of core of, of why these peaceful protesters are protesting. It's because of the inaction by the district attorney in Minneapolis to arrest the officers. And so at a time where we don't want to be like Minneapolis, I think the good thing of this is that this is an ongoing investigation. Let's not rush the judgment. These officers will have an opportunity to defend themselves. But had D.A. Howard not acted swiftly uh, and arrested the officers the way that he did, I think that we would have seen striking similarities of what's going on in Minneapolis. And so while I understand where the chief is coming from, but I do also understand that D.A. Howard had to do his job. Edward? Well, what's interesting is how politics plays into it. And, and Theron made some excellent points regarding the uh, the policy aspects and the substance of the issue. But a couple of things that have been raised uh, by, by Chief Shields and the Fraternal Order of Police and others is that uh, is that Paul Howard is in the middle of a very tough reelection campaign. Uh, he's facing two uh, significant opponents in his primary next week. And both the Fraternal Order of Police and Chief Shields have raised the specter that politics played as much a role uh, in this, uh, in this, in these criminal charges as did uh, the, the question of whether or not these individuals had done something criminally wrong. Uh, Chief Shields also raised the concerns about other uh, law enforcement agencies that have pulled back from assisting in Atlanta uh, out of fear that its officers or their officers could also face possible criminal Mm -hmm. uh, charges should they step out of line. So there's a lot of different moving parts here. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, you go back to the the core issue here, which is uh, what happened to these two very fine young college students and what was shown on tape. Uh, I don't disagree with Theron. What was on tape was horrendous. Uh, and uh, it'll be very difficult to see how it can be explained away. Hey, Greg, jump in on this. Yeah, I mean, just a just a tense time, and I think Ed's Ed's comments were were spot on in terms of 
um, right now, every morning, um, Police Chief Shields has to wake up and, and, and figure out what assistance she needs from outside agencies, right? I mean, some of them are suburban and they have to worry about their own concerns, and, but some of them, um, you know, don't, don't need as many officers on, on the streets. And I was covering one of the protests last night in a huge police presence. And, of course, a lot of the media attention has gone towards the National Guard, but you're talking about, you know, hundreds of Atlanta police officers and officers from, from nearby agencies um, that might be more reluctant right now um, to send in. And um, her letter talked about losing tactical support. And those were her comments, tactical support because of the newly filed charges from police chiefs um, who otherwise were happy to send in or were willing to send in officers who no longer have that trust. And, and we'll see how that plays out on the streets of Atlanta tonight and other nights when they have protests. But certainly, you know, it's, a, it's another operational um, uh, issue that, that she, Chief Shields has to deal with. Yeah, uh, one thing I want to make sure everyone also recognizes is that beyond this horrific situation, uh, the city of Atlanta has actually looked pretty good after Friday night. Uh, when you compare uh, some of the unrest that has taken place late at night after uh, protesters have gone home and the looters have taken over in other cities, Atlanta, by and large, has done a pretty good job. Uh, on Saturday and Sunday and Monday and last night. And I don't think that needs to be lost uh, to, to folks in, in terms of the right balance that has taken place. Uh, and I think a large part of that is due to the cooperation uh, that Mayor Bottoms has had with Governor, uh, with, with, with our Governor, uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, they have worked well together and uh, in terms of positioning resources. And, and I think that, that Atlanta citizens and state and Georgia citizens ought to, you know, uh, feel a little better about how Georgia is handling this versus what we've seen in some of the other parts of the country. And thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. You know, that's why we miss you so much down as legislature. I was going <laughs> to say that if you look at how Governor Kemp and Mayor Bottoms have been working together on this, we don't want to make sure we lose that. But the other thing I want to say is this, Bill. I want to publicly thank the hundreds of officers that literally, to Ed's point, on Friday night, we watched them stand up there while these protesters threw water bottles at them. They were chanting at them. I mean, Lord knows what they were saying, the protesters were saying to the officers. So I just want to publicly thank the APD officers. I know DeKalb County was very involved. I know Clayton County Sheriff Officers, uh, Victor Hill, came down and helped on Friday night. And definitely the Georgia National Guard and the State Patrol. So the one thing I don't want to miss here is, is that let's not let these acts that are under investigation for these six officers overshadow the good that these officers do for us every single day. And, and particularly, as Bluestein just pointed out, how they have been able to let people peacefully protest for now four nights in a row. And so I definitely don't want us to uh, not take a moment to really thank everyone, these men and women, for their service. <clears throat> I think one thing, uh, to get back to what, Theron, you had said about accountability, I think what protesters are looking at and really what just Americans are looking at when they're at home seeing all of this unfold on their television screens is um, are these police officers being treated the same or differently because they are police officers? And if they were not police officers, would there be filed char char charges filed, particularly in Minnesota, and now I think it's going to be the standard as these incidents are on videos and presented to Americans to judge for themselves. 
Um, and the next thing I think you'll see out of Washington, I don't know how much progress it'll make, but there is um, a movement toward police reform federally, um, looking at uh, national federal laws to um, uh, create a database for police misconduct so that police officers can't move among departments if they're dismissed, um, talking about new ways to train officers new ways to incentivize uh, local police departments um, to change the way that they're training officers, presenting no-knock warrants, um, uh, banning uh, racial profiling, religious profiling. So I think the next step of this is going to be looking at how do you give the American people confidence that uh, police are, um, as much to protect the reputations of good police, but to make sure that police who are engaging in misconduct are held accountable for that. If I can also Edward? sort of pick up on what Patricia said, that's going to be the hard part is the next step. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I believe everyone here and, and the polls show overwhelmingly uh, folks are in this country are standing with the protesters uh, and, and distinguishing between them and the looters and saying that there is a just a concern here. But the hard part is going to be what's next. What comes uh, next in terms of putting down uh, the, on paper uh, and implementing the necessary policies to change the trajectory that we are seeing right now in this country uh, mm -hmm. and to begin to address or continue to address some of the very difficult uh, issues uh, in terms of our history dealing with the issue of race. You know, we saw an early attempt I want to um, here. Oh, I was just saying we saw an early attempt at that here, here in Georgia because, look, I mean, as, as we all mentioned, there's no, there's, no, um, there's no solid leadership of these protests, right? They're very organic. They're very grassroots. Um, so it's not like other protests where, where there's one or two leaders you can identify. But we started to see some of those proposals being floated, and it goes far beyond hate crimes laws. It goes towards databases of excessive use of force for police officers. It goes towards Georgia's stand-your-ground laws and, and, and re repealing or reforming parts of those. It goes to making it easier to charge police for misconduct and, and legal standards. Um, it goes towards, um, uh, you know, an array of, of minimum mandatory sentences and issues like that. And um, I asked the governor yesterday, because so far we've heard from Republican leaders saying they're willing to take up hate, hate crimes, but not much more. And I asked the governor yesterday about this, and he said essentially that he's willing to have a dialogue um, with these group leaders about their demands. Um, but he, he first, these protests sort of need a calm. You know, he, he has to focus on the protests first, was, was his line at least, before he gets to the next steps level. Um, before we move beyond this, I, I want to just uh, read t uh, to you all and then certainly solicit your uh, response, all of you. Uh, uh, Louis Deckmar, the chief of police in LaGrange, he is a white uh, police uh, uh, official, wrote an op-ed piece in the Atlantic Constitution yesterday. And uh, he said that, um, speaking just of, uh, initially of the George Floyd uh, killing, he said this was not a result of poor training. He said this. The bystanders that called out for the police to stop were not trained in police use of force, but recognized what the police ignored, a fellow human being in pain, unsympathetically, unnecessarily being fatally injured. The action of the officer kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck, the failure to intervene by the three other police officers at the scene, and the press release of the incident, which grossly mischaracterized the nature of George Floyd's death, 
reflect a lack of core values that should be a concern to any police leader. Theron, that is a powerful statement coming from a chief of police right here in Georgia. You know, Bill, Chief Degmar is, is spot on. I mean, serving as a police officer should be reserved for only the most qualified applicants who show empathy, uh, people who show restraint, and the ability to de-escalate situations once they get hostile. You know, as, as, as Georgians, but more importantly as a society, uh, we have given the police the right to use force, uh, sometimes in, in, in some cases lethal. Uh, and to, to, but the ultimate goal is that we want to make sure that they feel like they have the ability to achieve their ends and, and their goals. But it's power, it is power that should be entrusted only to those who have been vetted to the greatest extent. And I think that is what the chief was saying. And, and one of the things that I would say as I close, Bill, is that how many times do we see police officers use their trainings for positive outcomes. We've seen a lot of those. I mean, and those don't get on television and the media don't always emphasize them as much as they do the bad incident. But I do think that you got to make sure that it's beyond the training. It's about the values of these women and men who decide to put their lives on the lines every day for instances like we're seeing now. And so, again, I think the chief spoke out. And, and look at where he's from, I mean, from, from the Grange. Um, and so this is a place that is not necessarily in Atlanta proper, but it's a surrounding metro county um, close to, to Atlanta metro area. And so I do think you'll see many other chiefs and sheriffs uh, kind of strike the similar tone that, that Chief Dagmar said. You know, when I was a, a very young lawyer starting tax law up in uh, Stevens County, which is up in the northeast corner of the state, I remember walking into Sheriff Shirley's office of Stevens County, and behind his desk was the following sign, the most dangerous man in America is the wrong person with a badge. And when I was reading uh, the uh, column by uh, the police chief from LaGrange, uh, I kept coming back to remembering that, that, that statement by that sheriff, and it's still very true today. Uh, Patricia, I, I know you, I want to get you in here, and I, I know you've got one comment, but I want to throw something out at you, and, and then you take it as it as it comes. Um, I, I, th I think it's fascinating that as we talk about how police are responding to the protests, uh, whether for whether they're doing it well or not, uh, there's also been enormous public reaction uh, to the protests by by those who are not protesting. Uh, Reuters Ipsos poll that was just released overnight. Uh, says that 64% of adult Americans are, quote, sympathetic to the people who are out protesting uh, right now. Uh, it, we should also point out that more than 55% of the people that Ipsos uh, polled said they disapprove of Trump's handling of the protests. 40% said they're strongly disapproving. And, of course, he's been all about, well, let's get as tough as possible on all these people. Uh, so throw that into the mix and then go ahead, Patricia. So I think that that 67% um, of people uh, understand, as all of us understand, um, that if this is more about police brutality. It's about American society and um, it's just a sinking sense that the racism that we keep trying to get past, we are not past, and that black Americans know this better and have always known this better than we have as white Americans. Um, and to me, it is just heartbreaking to see, and I think most people see in those protests, 
it's not um, just anger, it's grief and pain and disappointment and a belief that, you know, 70 years after the civil rights movement, we are still so much in the same place, um, that Black Americans are poorer, that their schools are worse, that many neighborhoods are still segregated. There's just a deep sense of unfairness in the society that I think this has opened the eyes of many white Americans to how difficult it still is for minorities in this country. And that's what, as much what those protests are about, as about George Floyd dying like an animal in the street. I, I want to, we've got to get to a break in a minute, but but I want to, if, if I make one comment about that, uh, and then maybe after the break, we can talk about it a little bit more. One example of, I think, what the inflection point that perhaps, perhaps we may be reaching here that Patricia speaks to. You know, it's interesting to me that after Ferguson, um, after Michael Brown, uh, when Black Lives Matter became a, a, a movement, there was such outrage and, and uh, criticism of, of this notion that Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. We went through that. People saw Black Lives Matter as somehow totemic of an anti-white sentiment out there. Some of it might have been that. What's fascinating to me is suddenly people are embracing the expression Black Lives Matter in an entirely new way. Uh, Greg, I find that fascinating that suddenly that phrase, which sparked such controversy, seems now to be something we're embracing as a society. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's sad that, that, it, that it took uh, a lot of America seeing what African-Americans have been saying is going on for, for you know, decades, um, ages, um, to, to, to get to this point. But look, I mean, we were just talking about that, the, the police officers and police chiefs in rural America who are, who are standing united um, with Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, but uh, it's, 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 it's become the norm, and the few police chiefs that haven't are getting calls for resignation and to be run out of town. So that shows you how quickly this debate has changed. All right, we got to get to our first break of the show. So much more to talk about, and we will uh, continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy, Edward Lindsay, Theron Johnson, Greg Bluestein with me on the show today. You know, uh, those of you, when you listen to this show, you remind me all the time when you send me notes, listeners, about how careful I'd better be in the language I use uh, when I talk about uh, matters on this show. Theron Johnson, you've just been called out, and I suspect uh, it's because you maybe want to change your language. A couple of people have already uh, sent notes to us saying, Theron Johnson said that the police let demonstrators protest. It's not up to them to let them protest. They have the right to do that. I suspect you meant that uh, in a very much more innocent way than it's being interpreted. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, listen, um, you know, Bill, you know this. I'm I'm on radio and TV once a week, so definitely 
uh, I'm used to people sort of uh, expressing their First Amendment right to criticize what I say, which is my First Amendment right. Absolutely. What I meant was this, and you got to go back to listening to things that I've said before this. I am total support of peaceful protest. I'm a person who protests. I was actually down there Friday. So I encourage these people, if they want me to send them the videos of me actually peacefully protesting uh, on that first Friday of the protest, I was there. But no, what I was saying was, is that not that the police have to allow protesters to protest. The point I was making was that we want to you know, thank the police officers who actually did their jobs, who did not get violent, who did not sort of create this sort of uh, chaos that we that we saw. So, yeah, I want to clarify, I'm not saying that uh, protesters have to be allowed the right to protest, (laughs) but definitely want to make sure that we recognize these police officers who allow these peaceful protesters to protest. Thank you. And also, thank you for reminding me that when I introduce you, I should I should have said, as I always try to do, uh, that people can, in fact, watch you on Georgia Gang every Sunday morning uh, at 830. Uh, Lori Geary, our good friend who um, hosts uh, that that show. So I'm glad I thought to do that. Hey, can we talk about the elections for a little while? I mean, they are coming up in less than a week. Um, Six days. And uh, Greg Bluestein. Yeah. Six days from now. Um Greg Bluestein, it's distressing that the Secretary of State's office, or it seems to me it is, uh, has now said, acknowledge, yes, tens of thousands of absentee ballots have not found their way to voters who requested them to this point. Uh, At this point, it's too late, I assume, to mail them back, even if they suddenly arrive today. It's going to be hard to get them processed by, what is it, 7 o'clock election night is the deadline? Um, Yeah. And on top of that, we're being told that there are more polling places are closing down for various reasons, including not being able to find enough poll workers. This seems to me, Greg, like it is really building up to be a very troubling situation on June 9th. Where are we headed with this? Yeah, we're headed to a a lot of uncertainty and concern. I mean, 84,000 or so Absentee ballots are still apparently in the mail. Um, Fulton County officials have, have acknowledged they've lost um, uh, uh, scores of these of these uh, of, of return ballots, um, and especially amid the initial rush of getting them. So people are rightly concerned that their votes aren't being um, aren't being tallied properly, and then a lot of them will have to um, go and vote in person and cancel their absentee ballot request form, which could lead to to some more confusion. We're we're trying to tell people. Um, to look up on on the Secretary of State's website the status of their absentee ballot request form or their absentee ballot, and, and if they feel like they need to and they can safely do so, to go in and, and vote early to so make sure their 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 vote is counted. Yeah, we've pointed out. Uh, I have at least. I've gotten a lot of emails about this concern not getting ballots, and I've I've directed them to the same place you're talking about, Greg. It's. You go to the Secretary of State's website, you go to the election drop-down box, and there's a, uh, a place where you can click for what is my voter page, I think it's called, and you fill in your mm-hmm. information and it tells you uh, where, what the status is of your vote, if it's an absentee uh, vote that you're looking for. Uh, Theron, what, what, do you, is your, what, are you, what are you thinking uh, this could mean on primary election day if we have such, uh, if we have long, long lines uh, if absentee ballots are not getting processed, uh, what are the implications of all this? 
You know, I, I want to start by saying that I think the Secretary of State, um, Brett Raffensperger, is, is, has done everything he possibly could to try to communicate with the public about his intentions to not only get new voting machines, but to proactively send out uh, absentee ballot applications to allow Georgians to send them back in. So here's the challenge, Bill. So he, again, I want to commend him for being proactive, but when you just listen to what Blue just told us as far as the people not receiving their ballots and, you know, not accurately counting them, I think we have got to encourage people to go and early vote if you can. And if you physically have not received your application um, to vote absentee back yet, um, your, your actual ballot, I'm sorry, to, to vote absentee, then just go early vote. But what we're also going to see is that we're going to see long lines of people social distancing because, as you just talked about, Bill, uh, our poll workers are not able to work uh, as many polling locations. And then I think what Bluestein is going to get ready for is that the articles that will come after the election because you're just going to mm -hmm. see so many different groups are going to highlight the irregularities and, and some of the, 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 the challenges that voters face when they were going to vote. And so I think we'll see after June 9th a lot of lawsuits probably file in the state and local officials are going to have to answer some of the questions that are going to be raised. Well, to pick up on on the points that Theron is raising, I, I want the, the people of Georgia, the, the voters of Georgia, to recognize that we are dealing with an unprecedented issue, uh, you know, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and having to suddenly switch our, our voting uh, patterns from primarily in-person showing up on election day to to mail in. We we don't have right now the infrastructure in place that some other states do who've already gone toward uh, mail-in uh, voting. And and Secretary of State Raffensperger has tried to address the, the issue by making it easier for folks to, to mail in their ballot. But we as voters have got to, quite frankly, uh, show a little patience and, quite frankly, be, be prepared for uh, some uh, difficulties that we don't normally have in order to have our right to vote heard. And and that's not only June 9th, but we've also got to demand from our elected officials uh, that they put in place between June 9th and the second Tuesday in November the necessary infrastructure because the same issues are going to exist uh, in November. Uh, an overwhelming number of people are going to want to vote by mail as opposed to showing up to vote either early or on election day. And and the task is over the next six months, people of goodwill on both sides of the political spectrum have got to work very hard to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place so that people's vote can be heard in November. Well, I think um, I totally agree with that. Um, I do also want to say, though, I mean, this was totally foreseeable uh, when this election was moved to June. I don't know why it couldn't have been moved to July, uh, which is when we've had elections in the past sometimes. Um, the the shelter-in-place order for people over 65 does not expire until June 12th after the election. Um, so many of those poll workers um, are themselves medically fragile and is why they're not able to come in. Um, so I think this is going to lead to um, not just lawsuits, but um, and I'm, I'm hopeful this is not the case, but if there is a close election, you can certainly count on requests for recounts and requests for investigations because um, 84,000 ballots out, we've seen elections in the last cycle separated by 500 votes. What do you do if you lose by 500 votes? 
you're going to challenge that election. Um, I think it's also going to take some extra time to get those ballots counted the first time. Um, and then certainly we're going to need to count them a second time with new voting machines. Um, there's, it's going to be very incumbent upon the Secretary of State's office um, to explain thoroughly to Georgians how those recounts happen with the new voting machines. Um, and I do agree that Raffensperger has done everything possible with a bad hand. Um, he's also, I think, been very impressive in draining the partisan rhetoric out of this primary um, that we really, it was a huge obstacle in 2018. Um, so I think um, his position in this, um, in this, uh, him being in this position now is, um, is very, very helpful. Well, to sort of uh, respond a little bit to Patricia's question of why it could not be moved to July, because I had the same question, Patricia, why it couldn't. And the explanations are, are relatively straightforward. We have a mandate in Georgia that to require almost two-month time period between a primary and a runoff in federal elections. So if we move mm -hmm. it to July, uh, particularly in the U.S. Senate races uh, where there are primaries and and, you know, that, that are taking place in likely runoffs, uh, for instance, in the, in the race involving the Democratic candidates running against Senator Purdue, that would push their runoff into mid-September uh, and giving them only six weeks to then campaign in the general election. Uh, we also had the situation with uh, the presidential primary was also pushed back to June 9th. And in terms of getting delegates selected for the uh, conventions, it would have been made more difficult. Uh, given the fact that they really haven't had a primary presidential primary in Georgia to select uh, the, the delegates going to, in particular, the Democratic Convention. So those were some of the practical concerns so, moving it to July. So, uh, uh, Bluestein, I just got an email. I'm getting lots of emails right now from people who said, oh, my ballot finally arrived in the mail yesterday. These are people who had written me in the past and said, I'm not getting it. And I've said, well, let me know if it never comes. Some of them are saying that. Others are saying, all of a sudden, I have not gotten one. But the most important one in terms of an action, at least right now, is Greg. I just got an email from a listener who said, I thought early voting ended already. And we should make clear, Greg, that, in fact, early voting uh, goes through this week in many counties. I can't speak to the entire state. Uh, but I, but, but if, for, for the most part, if you're listening uh, in most jurisdictions, your early vote, right, Greg, will, you, you have that chance through Friday. And I should say... I was one of those people, I kept putting off sending back the absentee ballot request that I got from the Secretary of State. I kept putting it off and putting it off until I got to the point that I realized I was going to have to vote in person. And I have to say, I went into my polling place right after this show, uh, the day before yesterday, there were about six people in line to vote. Uh, it couldn't have been handled better. Social distancing was in place. There was hand sanitizer everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it was a smooth and easy process. That might be the best way to vote right now, because it is not likely to be, Greg, like that next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're right. Early voting still um, continues on this week, um, and election day, of course, is Tuesday. Georgia law requires absentee ballots to arrive in county elections offices by 7 p.m. on election day, so they must be in on election day by 7 p.m., there is a lawsuit um, that, that, that has not been resolved that, that asks that ballots postmarked by election day should be counted. But um, but I, I think that's the best case, Bill, is is if you feel safe, of course, um, to, to do your best to, to make it in person. 
Um, and that, that might be this week or that might be next Tuesday. But um, that's the advice we're trying to give folks as long as they feel safe doing so. And if you don't, you, you got to do what you got to do. But if you feel safe to go show up in person and then ask for your absentee ballot request form to be canceled if you haven't received it or returned it in. Yeah, the, the AJC has done a really good job of communicating that. And, and Bill, I want to thank you for uh, what you just shared with the public because so <laughs> many people are like you. Uh, a lot of folks were sort of apprehensive about sending in the application. But once we sort of can communicate that people can early vote and that you just complimented how your experience was very positive, I agree with both of you all. I think that if you're physically able to do so, please go out this week and early vote because what we don't want to happen is that people get discouraged on Tuesday because of long lines, because we know the lines are going to be long because we're going to have to social distance and we don't have as many poll workers. And we know that people have got to be extra careful uh, in this process. And so again, if you're physically able to go out and early vote, please do so, or just make sure you communicate with the secretary of state's office or your local uh, county official office about your absentee ballot. Thank you, Theron. I appreciate that. Uh, let's get our final break of the show in. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump and Georgia. This is Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, the Republican National Committee and North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper have been going back and forth and back and forth over the uh, RNC's determination, President Trump's determination to have a fully realized Republican convention in late August in Charlotte, which was designated their city, what, four plus years ago, which is the amount of time you need to prepare for a convention. Uh, Roy Cooper yesterday said uh, it's up to the president and the Republican National Committee to tell us how they're going to deal with uh, making sure we have social distancing rules in place, all the other things to avoid the spread of the coronavirus. And in response, the RNC now says they are going to look for an alternative location, at the very least for President Trump, to give his acceptance speech, while at the same time they're keeping the door open for the possibility of conducting a lot of the other business in Charlotte to comply with the contracts they've already signed. What a mess. It's a mess. Uh, A multi-state Republican National Convention, can you imagine? And, of course, Georgia is floating (laughs) as a possibility that it could be in Atlanta. I talked with William Pate, who's the chief executive of the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau, this morning. He says the agency has not yet been contacted by the RNC and look, he's, he'd have to cancel events that are starting to come back or move those events around. Um, but he said, look, if the president demands it and the governor wants to move forward, we're going to get it done. Um, I should add that Washington Post uh, did have a story that did not mention – it said that um, officials are looking at Jacksonville, Florida, Orlando, Las Vegas, and Nashville did not mention Georgia. Um, but certainly Governor Kemp is doing his best to, um, to get Georgia on, <laughs> on the RNC's radar at least. <laughs> So, Patricia, two things about that from my point of view. One, uh, Kemp did send out, and I guess it was a tweet. I didn't, I didn't see the context, but basically said, "I hope Georgia is on the president's mind." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he wants him here. Uh, I, you know, considering all the concerns about coronavirus and the early concerns and the ongoing concerns among a lot of people about whether the governor has handled coronavirus correctly here uh, to invite uh, 19, 20,000 people who would normally show up as delegates and other ancillary folks at a convention 
who could be bringing who knows what virus from who knows where uh, may not uh, please some people in this state. But the other thing I want to ask you to comment on is President Trump is determined to be able to give an acceptance speech in front of an adoring crowd of thousands of cheering people. I don't think, I think I'm being very objective in saying, I don't think he much cares about the rest of the business of the convention and where that takes place. I don't think he would really know what happens at a convention other than the speech. That's probably the only part he's ever paid attention to. But I mean, like most Americans, no fault for the president. Um, but yeah, I think the governor of North Carolina has been just extremely realistic. You cannot guarantee a crowd of 19,000 indoors in August. Um, it, who could do that? What governor could do that? We're not hearing Governor Kemp say, yes, I guarantee 19,000 indoors in August. Um, now, President Obama did have an outdoor acceptance speech in Denver. Um, I would not put it past President Trump to have an outdoor speech in a stadium, people distanced every six feet apart with mannequins between them to make it look like 100,000 people. I just... You know, he's going to break every rule there is, and there are not many people, It'll be... especially Republicans, to stop him. If, well, if, you're a, if you're a European football fan, you already know <laughs> that the Bundesliga, the German soccer league, is already putting mannequins and uh, cut out uh, people into the stands while they go back to playing soccer. Maybe we'll see that with the Republican convention, Theron. <laughs> Patricia, you are on fire. Oh, my God, that was so funny. Um, but, but a couple points I'm not to make. No, I know you're not, but it, it, was, it was hilarious. Um, but, no, let, let's also talk about Governor Kemp. This was a good move for Governor Kemp. I mean, think about when he mm-hmm. basically said, hey, if you don't want it in North Carolina, come to Georgia. And let's talk about why Georgia and North Carolina are so important is because they're battleground states, right? And so you know that truly – the, the, the president knows that if he can win North Carolina, he may have a good chance of being reelected. But if Democrats can compete and win in North Carolina and places like Georgia and Florida. And so that's why I think that the president is figuring out a way to probably have the convention in a battleground state like North Carolina, but also figure out how he can maybe get a double whammy and do a sort of acceptance speech uh, in another possible battleground state. And then the second point I want to make is this. Um, Blue mentioned uh, William Pate. For, for our listeners who don't know who William Pate is, is that he's the person that controls the Atlantic uh, Convention and Visitors Bureau. You have to make sure that Mr. Pate is totally on board to do what uh, the Republicans will need to host a convention in Georgia. And then lastly, Mayor Bottoms came out right away and expressed concerns about this uh, because she just knows that it's just almost logistically impossible to pull off something that massive at a time where we're fighting coronavirus? Well, if, if I can pull back a little bit from the, the question of, the, of, of ego of the president uh, and sort of look at how conventions have been utilized by the parties historically over the last 50 years plus, these are enormously important uh, for both parties in terms of launching their candidate toward the November election. And I'm sort of curious as to what Wisconsin's going to do with the Democratic Convention, because uh, they're going to face the same problems up there 
that folks in North Carolina are going to face if, if the Republican convention takes place in Charlotte is, you know, how are they going to be able to to be able to present the message that they that both parties like to present at conventions, get the bump that historically does come out of respective conventions. Uh, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how both parties deal with trying to launch a national campaign from a convention during the era of COVID-19. Well, we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out, but it, it is fascinating uh, to see it. Um, Greg, at the same time, what's interesting is we have heard very little. Uh, clearly, the Democratic Party is working hard on figuring out what their convention is going to look out, look like, and they're doing it within a different kind of within a different kind of context. They're doing it within this context of uh, uh, their presumed candidate, Joe Biden. Uh, having already been sheltering in place for months now and being criticized by some for not finding a way to inject himself more uh, dramatically into the dialogue. Uh, but the, and they've already, Greg, moved their convention from late July to uh, mid-August uh, because of their concerns about coronavirus. But we don't know what they're going to do either, Greg. No, we expect a scaled-back um, convention with, with still a lot of parts virtual. But look, I talked to Georgia Democrats who are very involved in, in these types of planning processes, and none of them think that it's going to go forward um, as, as past conventions have. Um, you know, e- even if there is a physical part of it, um, you know, it might just be a few of the major speeches and then most of the uh, other work being done remotely. Um, and look, it will be a, a different optic view, too. If you have the Democratic convention done mostly um, you know, on, on computer screens and the Republican one in full vivid display, um, it'll present a sort of challenge for Democrats to try to, you know, get more of that attention. I've, there is just a, still a global pandemic afoot. I, I do think there are some really serious health concerns mm-hmm. about putting 20,000 people, um, 5,000 reporters all in one room. I think you really that can't be lost. Um, also, I work for a senator from Nevada. I don't recommend Las Vegas in August. I don't recommend <laughs> that for the president. It's <laughs> a bad idea. Oh, that's really, uh, yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, you know, we're just about out of time uh, for today's political rewind, uh, but it was a terrific conversation. I really appreciate Edward Lindsay, Theron Johnson, Patricia Murphy, and Greg Bluestein for the conversation uh, today. Uh, we, oh, we should point out uh, that a big day down in Glynn County, we're going to have our first hearing uh, in the uh, uh, case against the three men, uh, the McMichaels, uh, and I'm blocking, I shouldn't be blocking the name of the man who shot the video, but I am right off the top of my head. Uh, their first hearing, they're not going to be in court physically. They're going to be watching on a video uh, from jail, uh, but all the other principals will, in fact, speaking of social distancing, be in court. That's clearly going to be an important uh, moment for the state. The governor has already said he is preparing for the potential for demonstrations that uh, he is going to assure with uh, the right law enforcement resources in Glynn County will uh, be available to stop it from getting out of hand. Tom Faust reminds me his name is William Rody Bryant, the third defendant in the case. That's it for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back again tomorrow for another show. In the meantime, please take care and whatever you do, stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>